0: Welcome to Island Idols I'm Barry Menikoff calling in from Honolulu and you are Aaron Menikoff calling in from Atlanta and this is a podcast about books and life Welcome back to Island Idols. Here we are for episode number 23, and our topic is Leo Tolstoy. Now, I know that it's 2020, and there's a lot going on in the world today, a lot of things that people could talk about on the airwaves, as they say, but really, what else would one want to talk about to help us in these trying times? But an author who's been dead now for 110 years, right, Dad?
1: Uh, well, if you say so. I mean, uh, actually, there's a lot going on in Hawaii. We're in lockdown again. Our numbers
0: are going up, so we're very conscious of the. Uh, but Dad, I think a lot of people, when they hear that you're in lockdown in Hawaii, I don't know that they're really all that sympathetic. Well, okay, I, I'm not.
1: Uh, I'm not waving any. I'm not. Crying crocodile tears or whatever it is they cry, I just wanted to pass that information along to you. I mean, Leo Tolstoy is great. I actually have to defer to you because we—I don't know how much the audience knows or the listeners know—but you have a special expertise in Russia, Russian culture, Russian history, and you actually <inaudible> visited. <inaudible> <You've>
0: been, <inaudible> right, <inaudible> right, right. So. <inaudible>
1: So although you're you're asking the questions, I'm not sure you can ans- ask the questions and then answer them. And I'll sit here and listen very attentively.
0: Well, to tell you the truth, let's, uh, truth in advertising. So I've read three works by Leo Tolstoy. The first thing I read was How Much Land Does a Man Need? Very, very short story. When I taught literature, when I was in seminary, my um, side job was teaching at sort of a homeschool co-op. And so I, that was one of the stories that I taught. The next book I read uh, was a book, I think it was the, the last novel that Leo Tolstoy wrote, which I think, and it is Resurrection. Uh, I don't know that. So and then the third book was recommended by you. In January of 2018, I think. What was that? And it was Anna Karenina. Oh, wow. Well, and I've read... Well, I
1: read some Russian works. I've been... I was was interested in Russian writing. And uh, anybody who's ever read my... uh, my Brooklyn book, Stone Mother, where we might notice that when I was in high school, we were given *Crime and Punishment* to read, and I figured that Dostoevsky—that's right—and I figured that was that was my great start. Of my, I started reading again because of that. And I read—I uh, was actually on a panel here at the University of Hawaii when I talked about Solzhenitsyn. Not that I pretend mm-hmm. to be any expert on it, but that's another story, mm-hmm. which is an interesting anecdote. And I was a great fan of, uh, I am a great fan of Vasily Grossman, who is, I think, the uh, modern Russia's, one of modern Russia's great writers. And his big novel is Life and Fate. So that's the story about my little bit of my
0: foray into Russian writing. Well, when were you first introduced to Tolstoy?
1: I, well, I read some of the short stories. I read Death of Ivan Ilyich, uh, mm-hmm. but when I was on my last sabbatical, I thought to myself, you know, I've never read, I've never read War and Peace. its I don't believe in these bucket list things, but uh, I said, I think this new translation had come out, and I thought this was a good opportunity to see if I could do that. And I have to say, it was an experience. I read Anna Karenina years and years ago. I read Anna Karenina when I was doing, I was on a research trip, and uh, I needed to, when I went on my research trips in the summer, I used to take one book at least that I thought would tide me through the summer that was some great classic that I'd never, you know, encountered. And Anna Karenina was one of them, and that's when I read Anna Karenina. But I reread it for your at uh, your suggestion that we do this on a podcast, because I could not depend upon...
0: Wait, you reread Anna Karenina for the podcast? Absolutely. Wow, it's a long book. Well, I actually finished it long before this podcast that we're now broadcasting. <laughs> well, COVID has slowed us down. So there, there, there you have it. So, Dad, here's a statement. Uh, tell me what you think about this. Some novels are famous because they are popular some novels are popular because they are famous
1: whoa i never heard that before
0: that's great some novels are yeah who did you make that up i did make that up but i thought if i said it that way it would seem like it might have a little bit more authority or panache well i'm sure it does if you made it up it's got authority But I I thought about it because, like, everybody knows War and Peace, but who reads it? Uh, Some of us read it. Some people read it. I know. You read it. And
1: Anna Karenina. Well, that's a long book. Probably more read Anna Karenina than than War and Peace. That's my guess. I have not made a study of this. But my guess is Anna Karenina would be read largely because Anna Karenina has the reputation of being this great romantic novel and everybody falls in love. And anybody who's ever been in love that has some literacy in their, in their makeup says, oh, you have to read Anna Karenina, or you must know Anna Karenina. Nobody says that about War and Peace, I don't think.
0: Which one had the movie adaptation with Audrey Hepburn? War and Peace. And so did you, did you love that movie because it had Audrey Hepburn in it? I didn't see it. Wait a second. There was an Audrey Hepburn movie that you didn't see? Yes, it was War and Peace. And do you know Why? I actually I I do, do know why, but let, but but okay. but try to surprise me.
1: Well, I did not want to see an Audrey happen in a costume drama, but actually, I found a very funny, a very amusing story about that. Do you do you want me to tell that story? I do, I do. Audrey, when that movie was being produced, it, it was a great American director, King Vidor, who was directing that movie, and they were trying to get. Uh, to get it produced and they were trying and so they were trying to and there was an Italian producer and Audrey Hepburn was was married to Mel Farrar and they were living in they were vacationing or they were stopping in some Swiss Swiss inn and Vidor and this Italian was driving through Italy into Switzerland so that they could encounter Audrey Hepburn and Mel Farrar and pitch the movie to them and get them to agree to do it and i i found that in some notes in the in the course of some weird research and it was so funny here is king vidor who by this time was probably in his 60s you know and audrey hepburn was probably what in the 20s and here he is the 60 year old man pitching you know a story to his 20 year old starlet to see if she'll sign with him to make this movie war and peace which i thought was very funny
0: well i haven't seen it either but you know don't you think she should have played like anna or kitty from anna karenina uh I don't know, I don't know that you just you just object to the whole costume drama bit, so Dad Tolstoy was born august twenty eighth eighteen twenty eight uh he lost both of his parents when he was very young. they were very wealthy, they had a very large estate uh in the far uh, about i think a hundred miles east of of Moscow. Uh, he ended up going to the University of Kazan in 1841, where he basically flunked out. So that's, I guess, encouraging to some people that Leo Tolstoy flunked out of college. Mm, Okay. So he went on and and lived quite uh, recklessly, uh, licentiously. Uh, He uh, enjoyed life.
1: Yeah, a lot of women he gambled a lot.
0: Yeah, and then he joined the army in 1851, where he took part in the Crimean War, um, a war that had to do with the, the, the rights of Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox in Israel, as well as um, the spread of the Ottoman Empire. He saw war. He saw bloodshed. He saw Russia not do really well in that battle and much of tolstoy's writing is spent addressing the problems of a nation as vast as russia that uh after his experience in the crimean war he came to feel was a a country that uh, always seemed to be behind the times to he began writing i think while he was uh at war he 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 started keeping a diary during when, when he was pretty young And so he had a lot of things to draw upon in his writing. He wrote a kind of childhood memoir. So he started doing some writing. It was published, but he gambled away his money in Paris in 1857. Eventually, he comes back to Russia. And this man just seemed to have a a strange life. He opened up a school for peasants. He marries in 1862, has 13 children, I think 10 surviving. And then by the time we get to the 1860s and 70s, we get to the part of his biography that he's remembered for the most, and that's his writing in those two decades of his two most famous works, War and Peace and Anna Karenina. What am I missing when it comes to the importance of his biography up to that point?
1: Uh, I don't know. I I I defer to you. It sounds okay. I
0: mean, did you teach? Did you teach? Tolstoy, I know that you you weren't no. a Russian uh literature prof. So if you didn't teach him, why why when I said, Dad, what book should I read, did you recommend Anna Karenina?
1: Well, look, you know, uh I I still believe there's a value in these old classics. I mean these old classics, these classics. Mm-hmm. And while life is too short, and you know, time is too Precious for us to be able to imagine going through all the classics. There are some books which, if you, you know, if you want to consider yourself a person who has some kind of some kind of broad education, you should be familiar with. And so, although I, you know my field was English and American literature, it doesn't keep you from reading in translation. You know, mm-hmm. the literature of other countries. In fact, you should, because otherwise, how would you be? You'd be too parochial. And so a book like uh, Anna Karenina was one of those I remember reading. And it was very, it, it, it's a very powerful book. It's a very moving
0: book. Why did you not recommend what is arguably his most famous book, War and Peace?
1: I just thought Anna Karenina is probably a more engaging story. Although War and Peace, by the way, I should say for the listeners, I, my experience reading it, even in, as late as I did, It's incredibly, uh, I don't want to say it's a page turner, but it's a book that keeps moving. I mean, Tolstoy is a brilliant writer. I mean, he he has a style that is accessible and he has a story that's uh, constantly engaging. I mean, he's very different than Dostoevsky in this way. Dostoevsky is a writer that you immerse yourself in, but you have to work at it. But Tolstoy, you don't really have to work at. Tolstoy is... I don't want to say easy listening, but I mean his style is much more accessible than uh, I would say than, uh, than Dostoevsky's.
0: Dad, in our next episode, we are going to dig into Anna Karenina. In this episode, I'd like us to to think a little bit or to talk a little bit about his writing in general. I want to begin by by sharing an experience I had when I read his book Resurrection. A number of years ago. So I don't know where I found it, um, but I found it. I was familiar with the name. I was intrigued by the title, Resurrection. I mean, as a, as, a, as a Christian, it's like, what in the world, Resurrection? Well, it's this story about a wealthy man who finds himself in a jury. And uh, the jury is trying a woman, I think, for prostitution. And uh, he discovers... During this trial, that this is a woman who was a servant on his estate many years ago, who he had cajoled uh, into his bed, very close to rape, maybe something falling slightly short of rape. But whatever it was, he realized as she is standing trial that in a sense, his actions led her to this state of to this life of crime and, and poverty and so forth. And he's, he's riddled with, with grief and with regret. And so the, the entirety of the book is, uh, him pursuing this woman, trying to get her freed, but pursuing her with hopes of marrying her and atoning for his past, uh, his, his previous sin. And it is, you're, I, I was reading it, and it was just amazing, amazing, amazing—a real page turner. Uh, you're getting into the minds of the characters. You're feeling for the characters. You're you're literally traveling with them to Siberia, and you get—I got to the very end of the book, and I don't know if you remember. I know we talked about this a few years ago, but you, you may not remember it. I got to the end of the book, and it was as if the climax of this book was you know, we all need to join a commune where we can love one another and live out the peace of God. I felt like this incredible novel ended up as kind of a really bad religious tract. And if you've ever seen Dad, have you ever seen uh, the movie A Christmas Story? Mm, I don't know. Right. It's it's lowbrow entertainment. So it's probably not something that you really would have would have watched. But the kid in A Christmas Story uh, loves this radio show. And every night on the radio show, there's this uh, there's this puzzle to be solved. And he's so excited. He's got his uh, he ordered his decoder ring through some, you know, mail in toy, you know, prize. So he gets his decoder ring. And then he's got his decoder ring and he listens to the radio program and he's going to decode the secret message, you know, and he's really excited and he starts doing it and D-R-I-N-K and the whole message is drink more Ovaltine. And he's just deflated because his great mystery was a commercial. That's how Resurrection felt.
1: Well, you know, of course, the period you're talking about, that's his last book. I mean, Tolstoy was uh, had become something of a strange figure. You know, he was going to give, or he wanted to give away all his property. He wanted to, he was going to free his serfs. That's right. He He got into
0: a big debate with his wife. He wanted to give everything away, and I think he finally decided that she could have all the royalties to his books written prior to like eighteen eighty one. That was the compromise.
1: I mean, he's also, you know, he also wrote, Tolstoy wrote an essay called What is Art? Mm-hmm. So he was very concerned with the whole theory of, uh, of art. What is it for? And when he's writing this, he's writing this from the point of view of Christian universal uh, humanism, if you will. I mean, art is to communicate. Art is to elevate people. And art is to bring out the best in people right and there's a very strong you would understand this is the very strong christian message behind this and of course you know in a way he's sort of dismissing the work that he's done himself because it doesn't really elevate the world the way he believes the world should be elevated and it's as if he's turning his back on his actually his hard hard-earned work And he's now saying, I've seen the light, and now we're going to move into some kind of utopian uh, community where everybody is giving themselves over to loving one another, etc., etc., etc. Yeah,
0: just uh, just a a point of clarification. Uh, He certainly presents some very Christian themes. Uh, He grew up a member of the Eastern Orthodox Church. There, There certainly must have been a time in his life when he gave intellectual assent to the cardinal Christian doctrines. But what he wound up with was really the, ven- uh, the veneer of Christianity. Uh, in fact, uh, he was eventually excommunicated from the, the church, the Russian, the Russian, the Russian Orthodox church, church because, uh, because he was publishing literature that was denying the, the basics of Christianity. So, there was, a lot of, there, there was a lot of Christian moralism, but there was no Christian doctrine.
1: Well, I would say this, since I, I obviously can't comment on the doctrine aspects of any of this. You, you see this in Anna Karenina, but you see this in really major, major Russian, all major Russian writers. They are deeply, deeply philosophical. So whether you want to put it in terms of the Christian religion and dealing with it in that way, framework, certainly in Anna Karenina, the the philosophical question is, what is the meaning of life? Why am I here? And we can talk about this with Anna Karenina next week if you'd like. But I'm saying this is the theme that runs through Christian. it, It certainly permeates Dostoevsky. It runs through Tolstoy, and even into the twentieth century, you see it in, you know, the title of Vasily Grossman's great book, Life and Fate. I mean, just a title like that. What American writer would think of titling his book Life and Fate? They would. The right. editor would say, "You got to be, you got to be joking."
0: Well, I think with Anna Karenina, he um, he probably espoused in Anna Karenina more than he eventually actually believed. But the reason why I told that story of of his book resurrection because when i when i told you that a few years ago you commented something like that just shows what an amazing writer this man was that he could keep you captivated for hundreds of pages even if you ultimately didn't like where he went this was a man who who knew who knew how to enru- how to write how to engage the reader could you explain in some more detail what it was about his his writing that uh, has made him so unique and has stood the test of time? Well,
1: um, that that's you know that's a big question. I am not sure I can know how to answer it, but I would I would try to say this: if we're looking at well, thinking back of what I can remember at War and Peace, but certainly with Anna Karenina, if you just take. A chapter, any chapter in Anna Karenina. One of the things you notice is that paragraphs, pages, and chapters are—they're all mini stories. You know, there's, any, there's a wealth of information embedded in these stories. Now, some readers may not like that, but this is this is uh, this is what Tolstoy is really great at. He embeds stories within his paragraphs. Now, sometimes those stories are psychological. I mean, one of the great things about the book is the psychology. I mean, how do people actually experience the daily daily life? How do they feel? What drives them? What are they thinking? What are their conflicts? Part of it is, you know, what we might call historical. By historical, I mean, it describes the world outside. What do people wear? How do they travel? Uh, how do they, how do they engage in commerce? Uh, what are their relations? So you get that. So there are, with a writer like Tolstoy, you can't read him really quickly because there's so much information. In his pages, in his in his chapters, that they are stories to the, unto themselves. Do you, do you try to see what I'm getting at? Now that doesn't really say something about the style, but the style is what we would call very simply realistic. I mean it doesn't strain for you know uh, symbolism, you know overt symbolism. it doesn't it's not it's not ornate. It's not uh, self-consciously precious. It is very, very, it is realistic in that respect, which makes it so accessible.
0: There's something about Russian literature in general where the authors seem to be unusually adept at uh, getting into the mind of their character and, and sharing what their characters are thinking in a way that isn't isn't corny, in a way that that you feel like they really know this person, and they're able to they're able to describe emotions in a way that leaves you both almost uh, revolted by a person and yet understanding all at the same time. They bring out this complexity, and I don't know if there's. I don't want to. I don't want to over generalize about Russia or Russian history. But there is something I think about Russian literature that does this in a way that is unusual.
1: Uh, I wouldn't disagree with that. I mean, I would say, and you know, stepping back, stepping aside from Tolstoy, I would say R- Dostoevsky is the greatest example of this. I mean, I always use the line that Robert Louis Stevenson said about reading Dostoevsky: says it's not, it's not like reading a novel; it's like having a brain fever. I mean, mm-hmm. you are so absorbed in the characters, in their minds, that you are. In a way, you're you're chained to them, right? As far as Russian literature generally, now I am a complete amateur here, but it always struck me as really strange that a culture that has such a profoundly brilliant and you know original literature should have such a uh, political system, a culture that is so. <laughs> I don't know what – I won't describe it, but, I mean, just the recent experience with Alexei Navalny, I mean, it's just like a gangster culture. Mm-hmm. And yet it's, this is a country who's so deeply and, – and, you know, from what I understand, so so uh, the large public is so deeply poetic and, and loves its poets in a way that's, you know, not the case in America. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they will quote their Pushkin. They will quote uh, Anna Akhmatova. I mean – Well – That's another story. Perhaps that kind
0: of introspection doesn't make for the best government. I don't know. Spend a a little bit less time philosophizing, a little more time uh, getting your governing documents uh, in in order. There is certainly a plainness to Tolstoy's uh, writing. I'm going to give a little, just a little taste of what we're going to talk about next time with Anna Karenina, but there is the... Well, there's a real question about who the main character of Anna Karenina is. And I I came into that book, I, I think he just, he just fooled me. You know, I came into Anna Karenina basically not knowing anything about it. So for hundreds of pages, I felt like he just had me in the palm of his hands and went to town on me. But this is, so I'll, we'll explain that next time. But there's one character, a man by the name of Levin, who was prone to think about death, not unlike Leo Tolstoy. And uh, the author writes about Levin, the more he strained to think, the clearer it became to him that it was undoubtedly so, that he had actually forgotten, overlooked in his life, one small circumstance that death would come. And everything would end. That it was not worth starting anything. And that nothing could possibly be done about it. Yes, it was terrible. But it was so.
1: I would say that Levin is not a minor character. Levin is one of the... Levin might... I didn't say he was minor. Yeah. I mean, but the story... You've got to give a title to the book. I mean, he gives it Anna Karenina... And he writes underneath, a rom- uh, you know, like a novel. But in, in, in uh, you know, it would be roman. It would be in French, which would be romance. And romance in, you know, in, uh, in, in 19th century novels, especially European romance and novel, also was tied with love, romantic love and adultery. So there's a sort of, I think, a, uh, a kind of underlying idea tell's story by putting that putting that the subtitle in his book, but uh, there's, Anna Karenina is not the sole. I don't know whether she's essential. She's not the sole figure that that drives the novel. But well, she's one
0: of the- isn't that the truth? But anyone who picks up a book with the name Anna Karenina is pretty much going to think, "Aha, this book is about Anna Karenina," and there is so much more to it than that. Now, Dad, Dad, uh, who said consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds? Foolish consistency is
1: the hobgoblin, goblin of little minds.
0: Okay, who's... Ralph Waldo
1: Emerson. Okay,
0: so I want to publicly accuse you of inconsistency. Are you ready? At the risk of at the at the risk of appearing to have a little mind myself, at the risk of being disowned. Okay, we're <laughs> no, I, I'm too old for that. All right we're near the finish line of season number two of Island Idols, which I I really think that a lot of people may be saying was the best new podcast of 2019. Who would be saying that? I don't know, but I I bet there are a lot of people saying that. Okay. All right. So we're, 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 we're entering into the, 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 the end of the second season. And one of the things that I have learned about you is that, that you perceive it can be a little bit foolhardy to try and derive some moral, some lesson from a piece of, of art like literature. Uh, Don't do that. You might say, let, let it be. Um, There doesn't always have to be a tidy bow wrapped around the story. Life is complicated, Aaron, and your, you know, your, Christianity is sort of leading you to want to find some some lesson, and you know I just think that's very nice for you, but art doesn't work that way. I, I could be wrong, but that's what I've perceived from our conversations. That's very that's very well put. I like that. And yet, and yet, when you have the opportunity to recommend that I read a book. You read, you give me an author who at his very core argued to his dying breath that what makes art good is its ability to show you, not just show you, but to grab you by the neck and force you to live a better life than you would have lived had you not known these characters as deeply as you now do.
1: Why is that an inconsistency? The unexamined life is not worth living, right? Isn't that what Socrates said? Yes. Or something like that. So we're looking with the examined life. I mean, one of the things that's one of the things that's so strange about people that don't value education is they don't they don't recognize or they, they haven't the imagination to see that an educated life, an educated mind,
0: is a more interesting life. Right. So does Tolstoy the man Tolstoy the author Tolstoy the apologist for a kind of literature that is missional does does that does his does his uh, does his goal in writing challenge you is it like a, a piece of art in a museum that is interesting maybe a little anachronistic but you just move on because i think that his whole i think that his whole approach to writing would we say like two of the five best novels in history his whole goal is to to lead a man and a woman to change and i and, and 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 you would see that as not a not really a project that an author should necessarily undertake well let me put it this way
1: i mean i i make a I, I tend to make more of a separation between the author and the work than you do. I don't get so, because authors say a lot of things about what they're doing and what they've done.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's, it's, it's not always the case that that's what they've done or that they, even that that's what they're doing. So I tend to be more work-centric rather than author-centric in that respect. Well, I'm very author-centric in my admiring of people that actually make the books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See. It's like, you know, uh, David Balfour in the in um, in the novel David Balfour. He says, you know, his, his buddy, Alan Breck Stewart, admires the soldiers, but, but David says, I actually admired more the authors than the soldiers. Mm-hmm. So I admire the authors. But the books that they write, they have a life of their own. And the life in the book is what the reader is really engaged with.
0: Well, I don't dispute that at all. I don't dispute that at all. I think uh, it's a foolhardy. And they get something out of You get something
1: out of it. You learn something from it. You become. But what I don't say is that because you read these books, you'll be a better person. I don't say that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You see, that was an old 19th century idea that, you know, when religion was declining, Matthew Arnold said, well, we'll replace it with, you know, with art and so you instead of having to get your morals from religion we'll get them from books the great classic books i don't believe that i think that's a somewhat discredited idea but you can't not i do have an old the old classical notion that even arnold had that there is a humanistic ex, you know uh value to reading and to, to art and to literature and to painting and music and all of that. And it, 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 it makes life more interesting. It elevates your understanding somewhat or it improve, you know, it, uh, and it, it makes life actually more, more, more fascinating. And it makes you a, perhaps a more complicated person than you would be otherwise. I mean, one of the problems with people that aren't educated and don't read is their their lack their understanding is very limited.
0: What I find interesting about what you're saying is, I mean, I agree with all that. It makes you more interesting or it makes you more educated. It improves your understanding. When we were talking about your book Stone Mother, you you often would say that I hope it brings you some pleasure. So all of that, all of that is true. But even if I want to concede that we simply must take Anna Karenina at face value, which I'm happy to concede, I, I would I would say it's it's clearly there to do more than interest you. It is clearly there to inspire you to change. And um I think that's a that's a bridge that that I I, I think you don't want to cross. And um but I think that it's I think it's 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 inevitable. I, I don't say that books
1: can't change people, but, you know, it depends when you're reading them. You know, when you're a young person, books can have an enormous fact, uh, effect on your life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It could be the difference between you surviving and you're, you know, and you're actually having a rather, you know pallid on you know unfortunate existence depending on what your experience is where you're coming from they could be saviors i mean how many writers you know have we talked about who've been who've been saved by libraries richard wright is you know the example that comes to mind and black boy he talks about going to the library and he couldn't go to the library because he was black they wouldn't lend him the books so he went you know with a note from a white person that said did this person books wow. and that saved him Jack London lived in libraries. You know, Herman Melville, you know, I swam through libraries, he said. so. But as you get older, you read differently. And the books don't have the same uh, same ability to affect you the way they do when you're very young.
0: Why is that?
1: Life has intervened, I think. Mm -hmm. You're more set. You know, your opportunities for growth are more limited. And uh, you know your horizons have narrowed because of the nature of uh, of your existence. Whether you're married, whether you're divorced, whether you're raising kids, whether you're worrying about your job. Uh, But when you're when you're young, which is why I say the most important thing any parent can do with their child is to read to them when they're young and just keep reading to them.
0: I think that when you get older and you've experienced a great deal it's it's more difficult to be surprised. And so, you know, if you're young and you read Ethan Frome and you see this, you know, man who is trapped and everyone everyone in that story is is trapped, you know, maybe you are you're interested in the story, but it's just not as surprising because you've experienced, either you've experienced it or you've witnessed it. But if you're young and you read Ethan Frome, you're thinking, well, what can I do to avoid getting in that situation? Or, wow, I didn't know that it could get so bad.
1: And there are different times in your life. Of course, you know, when you're younger, you know, the world is open to you Mm -hmm. and, you know, you're discovering it. Uh, that's why, for example, I give I'll give a, a, a trivial example. I, I I get the New Yorker, I subscribe to the New Yorker. I have a very hard time reading the fiction. Do you know why? Mm-mm. Because the fiction in the New Yorker is largely written by 20 somethings, maybe 30 mm-hmm. somethings. And basically they're writing about their lives mm-hmm. and they're writing about their world. And what what how am I supposed to relate to these stories? I mean. It's not possible. I'm not I'm not faulting the mm-hmm. stories. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the uh with the stories or with the writers or with the New Yorkers selecting them, but I'm saying that's what the that's what the fiction is about. I'm not in my twenties or my thirties, and these stories of, you know, of people who grow up with, you know, texting are gonna have much to say to me. And I'm not saying that's the only thing they publish, but by and large, that's their readership. And so you start reading different things you're looking for different different uh experiences i find myself i'm more interested in philosophy well mm-hmm. i was always interested in philosophy and you know, i have a philosophy i majored in philosophy in college and i took a minor in philosophy when i was in graduate school which i've just mm-hmm. written about so i've always had a kind of interest in philosophy but now i'm more interested In the philosophical writers and reading about them, than I am necessarily in just reading about the next, the newest novel or that's on the uh, on the list and that everybody's writing about.
0: Well, I'm as a man in his forties who has, um, I've encountered a lot of people. I've um, I've pastored people through a lot of difficult situations. Not a day of my life goes by where I'm not confronted as both a Christian and a pastor with questions about the meaning of life. But, um, or and, the thing that made Anna Karenina so amazing for me is that for all my experience and all the things that I've learned and even all of the things that I know theologically, he somehow managed, perhaps in part because of the length of the book, which allowed me to patiently walk through the lives of so many characters, he had me thinking about things that I think about a lot in a slightly different way. And he had me appreciating things I already appreciate in, in a deeper way. And uh, that's not an experience outside of reading the Bible. And the Bible is just, I'm I've been reading the book of Ecclesiastes the past few weeks, and I'm going to be preaching from it. Um, in in a few weeks, and it is a profoundly philosophical and engaging and contemplative and deep book from the Old Testament. But uh, so I experienced that in Scripture.
1: That's where Hemingway took the title for his first novel, "The Sun Also Rises."
0: Mm. Oh, Dad, that might make it into one of my sermons. Thank you for that little tidbit. Yeah, he's got the whole epigraph, uh, part, the section from the Bible, on the uh, facing page. So. That made Tolstoy an amazing read. And next time uh, we want to we want to talk, uh, we want to roll up our sleeves and get into the plot of Anna Karenina. If you are new to the podcast or um, unaware that uh, our next episode is Anna Karenina, uh, I just want to say it's very unlikely between now and the release of that podcast that you will finish the book, Anna Karenina.
1: But if you can get, the if, if the listener wants to start, uh, you know, an, an enterprise or a project that can keep them going, they can start reading it. That's right.
0: They don't have to finish it for the podcast. That's right. That's right. And uh, for those of you who would affirm that Island Idols was, in fact, the best new podcast of 2019, please go to islandidols at gmail.com and let us know. And we'd be glad to have our anecdotal Um, conclusion confirmed by your response. Dad, it's good to see you. I hope that uh, your lockdown in Hawaii will end soon, and uh, I look forward to talking to you soon.
1: Great to see you, Aaron. Take care.